After feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish, Christ told his disciples to collect all that remained, that none be lost. Having fed the hungry multitude with physical bread, Christ also fed them the bread of life. His words were to be remembered, contemplated and shared, and no fragment of truth was to be left behind. I'm Laura. And I'm Bill, Laura's father. And this is Gathered Fragments. Over the last couple of episodes, we've been discussing the concept of the Godhead. We've seen that Jesus Christ is truly the begotten Son of the Father, and that the Holy Spirit is simply the divine Spirit of the Father and Son. We also touched briefly on Deuteronomy 6.4, otherwise known as the Shema of Israel, which states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Today, we're going to continue that study by taking a closer look at the God of the Bible. I can't think of a more important topic in all the Bible than who the God of the Bible is. I mean, what's the point of studying different doctrines and theology and all these things when we don't know who the God is? Well, God has clearly revealed himself in the Old and New Testament, and that's what the study is about today. People might think it's a strange topic because if they're here, they're obviously a Christian, so they obviously believe in God. Yes, as you're saying, but today there is different teachings as to who God is. One of the most predominant by far is the Trinity. Three divine beings, co-eternal or three hypostases emanating from one substance as the Catholic Trinity teaches, etc. Is this what the Bible teaches or does the Bible clearly identify as Jesus and the apostles and the prophets clearly identify who is the true God of the Bible, the sovereign and king and creator and sustainer of all things? I mean, as I just read in Deuteronomy, the Lord our God is one Lord. Like you said, that's called the Shema of Israel, and the very first word is Shema, or hear. If there was one thing God wanted as he raised the, the nation of Israel to declare his name and his glory and the knowledge of him to a perishing world of idolaters steeped in heathenism and polytheism, the one distinguishing aspect of the God of Israel was that he was one. Not two, not three, not a hundred, but one. This is why he says, Hear, O Israel. This is what he wanted them to clearly understand and to also reveal to all the heathen nations among them that they too could come to know this God and his salvation. And incidentally, as we go through this, we're not leaving out the Son of God. We glorify the Father through worshipping and glorifying the Son. So, But in this study, we're simply seeing who the prophets and the Lord himself taught is the true God of the Bible. So I suppose there would be some verses that you'd want to go to? In fact, not only go to, but some of the verses we'll look at are the plainest language. I mean, so plain we cannot possibly mistake them. And incidentally, keep in mind that the word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible. Nor are the words God the Son or God the Spirit. The Bible, when it speaks about the only true God, it's very clear as to who it is. And this is what I mean by being plain passages. Mm. And even the, the phrase Godhead, I think, is only in the Bible a couple of times. Yeah, and, and the word Godhead means divinity or the divine nature. The word in and of itself is not necessarily describing who God is, but rather the attributes and power of God. Mm-hmm. good place to start, for example, in the Old Testament is actually with an objection, but often with objections you can actually teach the truth. And one of the principal objections that is used in order to teach a trinity or more than one God, you could say, is the word Elohim, which is used for God. The objection goes that the word El, of course, meaning God or his power, 
the last two letters M being the plural suffix ending. So they say the word Elohim is a plural word, which it is. Therefore, God is more than one. And this is the um, conclusion, they, conclusion come to. they come to. However, one has to recognize that the word Elohim is not God's name. It doesn't mean a name, it's a title. It actually means greatness and power. God is great and powerful. Just like El Shaddai, also another title for God again, it's not a name. And it means God is almighty. When we study the word Elohim, which we, we have time today, but just maybe look at one or two verses, but to understand the meaning of Elohim, you need to look at the context and the plural or singular verbs and pronouns that are used in the passage describing that Elohim. The reason I say that is because Elohim is used for pagan gods, pagan deities, plural gods, false ones, and it's also used for the true God. And the singular or plural pronouns and verbs will, and of course the context, will show you what God is talking about. This is what I'm, why I said that it's not really a name. For example, there are many passages, but let's just look at one in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments. In fact, this is the first commandment. And we're going to see how Elohim is used in the same verse for both the true God of heaven and false gods. And it's the same word, Elohim. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Notice how I talked about the singular pronouns, I and the Lord thy God. And the word is Elohim. God speaking to Israel, commanding them, telling them, I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of Egypt. And then he says, Thou shalt have no other false gods, Elohim, before me. The first word for God, Elohim, is in the singular, with the singular pronoun I. And the second word for God is Elohim also, in the plural, gods, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So, simple point, but clearly the context reveals if it's referring to the true God or not. No need to go there, but in Exodus 7, verse 1, I think from memory, God is sending Moses back to Egypt. And he says, I will make thee a God before Pharaoh. And that word God is Elohim. And we know Moses was only one, not three, or, or multiple people. So just because the word has a plural meaning, it doesn't, it's, doesn't mean that everywhere it's used is in the plural, as we just read. Or that everywhere it's used, it's in reference to the true God. Absolutely. And notice some of the contradictions you would come up with. This is a really good one. Look at Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. I could really quote lots of passages in regards to this, but this is just one. What I want to bring out here is, if we want to use the term Elohim for a trinity, we could rightly substitute that word trinity for God and read the text, but you get some amazing contradictions. Let's read Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, then we'll see how it's translated in the New Testament. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. When we turn to the New Testament, we'll see that this is the Father addressing his Son. However, here, just looking at this passage alone, the word God there is Elohim. Now notice what happens if we substitute the word Trinity because some would have you believe that Elohim can mean the Trinity. Notice what happens. Let's read verse 7 again. But this time when you read God, substitute the word Trinity and look what happens. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore the Trinity, thy Trinity, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. See what happens? The Trinity God now has a Trinity God. 
Mm. You actually come up with six gods now. The Trinity, even thy Trinity. Obviously the word, the meaning here is singular. And of course it's referring to the true God, therefore God, even thy God. And we're going to see that now in a moment in the book of Hebrews. But the moment you try to use it plural, in reference to God, these are the sort of contradictions you're going to come up with. Obviously the New Testament writers understood being Hebrews, of course, Paul and Peter and these, the apostles. They selected a word in the Greek, which is theos, for the word Elohim, or the word God in the Old Testament. And notice how Paul, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, translates this text we just read. Hebrews 1 verse 9. God's addressing his son. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So it's a direct just quote. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And therefore Theos, even thy Theos, or therefore God, even thy God. The Father is saying here that he is the God of Jesus. I'm not saying it. The Bible says it. He's addressing his son. We're going to look at this passage again a little later. And you know it's um, the father speaking because in verse 8 it says, but unto the son he saith, Absolutely. thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So yeah. the father is calling Jesus God. So if someone asks us, well, are you saying Jesus is not God? Hmm, no, absolutely. We, in fact, that's why I said we'll look at this passage more a little later because clearly we in no way want to undermine Christ. The father himself calls him in that passage, calls him Lord and God. But then he says, therefore God, even thy God. And we'll see the apostles themselves say it. We'll see that Jesus himself says it. So there's perfect uh, harmony among the disciples, the apostles, Christ and his Father. Mm, but I have to butt in here because some people might say, well, now you're, you've got two gods. Oh, no, that's absolutely not. Remember that question? Well, let's certainly look at that. But all I just wanted to show there was that the New Testament writers, when they came to the word Elohim, we just saw from the 45th Psalm, this passage, and we saw how the, the writer of Hebrews translated that with the word phios. And in the Greek, the word phios, there is no plurality in that word. It is used over 1,300 times, I believe. And it is always in the singular. No, this is not an issue. Phios uh, is singular. And that's the word they use to translate Elohim from the Old Testament. For example, in you know, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That word God is Elohim. The Septuagint, which that is was what? written many hundreds of years before Christ. What's which the Septuagint? Is, the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament, translated by Hebrew scholars. There's a fascinating story behind the Septuagint, but nonetheless, it was translated by Hebrew scholars into the Greek hundreds of years before Christ. Christ is often quoted from the Septuagint. So what word did they use for Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, Elohim, or God created heaven and earth. They used the, term, the word theos. In the beginning, theos created the heaven and the earth. So again, Hebrew is, that's their words. That's their language. We're not going to tell Hebrews the meaning of their own words. They believe here, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And when they translated the word God from Elohim to Greek, they chose the word theos to try totally remove any... Potential for people to interpret it as a plural Yeah, God. They, wanted to, they wanted to use a, a singular word. And as we just saw in Hebrews as well, the New Testament writers did the same. One more point on, on this that is very interesting. Another really good verse to show, to show this is Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. The word Elohim, as we have seen already, it's used for the true God, it's used for false gods, pagan deities, etc. It's used for Baal, for Ashtoreth, etc. Milkon. There's another word that's used for God called Adonai. It means the Almighty. 
Adonai is also used, I can give many passages, but just to save time, is also used repeatedly for false gods in the Old Testament, both Elohim and Adonai. Now in this passage we're going to read, we're going to see the words Elohim and Adonai used for the true God and the false God, all in the same verse. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. We're going to see now Adonai and Elohim is used for the true God and false gods in the same verse. For the Lord, we're going to look at this word again a bit more in a moment, but that word there is actually Yahweh or Yehovah, which incidentally is God's name. I thought Yahweh and Yehovah were separate. No, same word. The actual word is called a tengrammaton, which are four Hebrew letters which actually cannot be pronounced. So they added two more letters in order to make it some kind of pronunciation. And the best you can come up or they come up with is Yahweh or Yehovah, which is the name of God. But what we're seeing here is Yahweh, your Elohim, is Elohim of Elohims and Adonai of Adonais. The plural there, or the Lord's, is the false Adonais, the false gods, and the plural for Elohim, gods, is the false gods. And the singular, Yahweh, your Elohim, or your God, is God of gods, and Adonai, or Lord of lords. The word in this passage that distinguishes the true God from the false ones. It's the singular. It's the singular, but there's something else. There's another word we haven't looked at yet, which I, I mentioned. It's the word Yahweh, or the name of God, you see. As I was saying before, they're not names. They're just titles, but Yahweh or Yehovah, that is God's name. It is used over seven, almost 7,000 times in the Bible. And it only ever is in reference to the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. This word here is never, ever used by other nations or false religions for their gods, never. In fact, the heathen around them, when they heard the term Yahweh or Yehovah, they knew that that distinguished the God of the Hebrews, the God of heaven and earth. It's a, a name that is used only for the true God and never for false gods. That is God's name. Mm. If you remember the contest on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, Elijah against the false prophets of Baal. And we know the story, the fire came down and consumed Elijah's sacrifice and the people repented and they bowed down and they cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God the people of Israel, and the false prophets of Baal were slain. But what were they saying was, Yahweh, he is Elohim, Yahweh, he is Elohim. That's what they were saying. They were recognizing the true God, their God. Mm, because we have to remember, this is in a time when everyone believed in God, or gods, everyone, oh, you know, all the pagan nations had gods. Absolutely. And that's why Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Here Israel, Yahweh, our Elohim, is one Yahweh. That's what it says. Mm. Very important. Now, you might say, well, that's Jews. What's that got to do with us? We're Christians. Well, <laughs> we're going to look at the New Testament now. We're going to look at what Jewish Christians like the apostles and what they said. We're going to see what Jesus says himself, the founder of the Christian church says, regarding the God of Israel, the Lord. In fact, the very first passage we'll look at is Jesus is asked a question by a scholar regarding what is the greatest commandment. Come to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? So this scribe, he's taken notice of Jesus' teachings, and he wants to test him. 
wants to test how true he is to the law, to, to the Old Testament. And incidentally, this word scribe, in, in, in Matthew's gospel, he's called a lawyer. The word means one who is pertaining to the law, an expert in the Mosaic law, or a lawyer. So this man is someone who knows the Mosaic law, and he's testing Christ to see how he's going to answer what is the greatest commandment. And that is how Jesus answers with Deuteronomy 6, 4, Mark, verses 29 to 31. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment given greater than these. So Jesus is the first of all the commandments, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4. And now notice how he connects it with the first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Now watch how the scribe answers Jesus. Uh, verse 32. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbour as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Yeah, the scribe was very pleased to see how Christ answered with Deuteronomy 6.4. And that is what he says. Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he and to love him with all heart, with all understanding. So there is no <laughs> misunderstanding here as to what the scribe believed, who was an expert in the Mosaic law. Now, does Jesus correct him? Was it, does, does Jesus believe that God is a trinity? Notice how now Jesus replies to what the scribe said, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, the scribe who was an expert in the Mosaic law clearly understood Deuteronomy 6.4 referring to one God. He and him he called him, to love him with all your heart, mind and strength, etc. And the Bible says, when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. This man was on his way to heaven. And he, he had the correct understanding of Deuteronomy 6.4, and we're reading in the New Testament now, not in the Old. The Jews had the right understanding of who God was and worshipping the true God. Now we know the apostasy that they fell into, etc. But Christ actually gives them one wonderful compliment. You know the story in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans, they had a mixed faith and a, a very confused faith. So Jesus clearly was not complimenting the woman in her understanding of worship. But he said, we, including himself, we Jews, we know who we worship. And he's speaking about the Father. And he goes on to say the salvation is of the Jews. They had the right understanding of God. And remember, Deuteronomy 6.4 was the pillar of their entire faith. And that scribe, when Christ quoted Deuteronomy 6.4, the scribe saw that he answered correctly. What's also interesting about that passage with the scribe is that people often use that passage to say that the Ten Commandments are no longer binding because there's just these two great commandments. Hmm. But Jesus is talking to a Jew and the Jews said, agreed to what Jesus said. Absolutely. The Jews believed in the Ten Commandments. Oh, they kept the Sabbath. They certainly. kept all ten. Well, they aimed to, to keep aimed, all ten. Yes. So 
uh, as if Jesus would be telling this man, oh, like these are the only commandments, like exclusive of those well, he, given at Sinai. He's clearly summarizing all 10, because the last six pertain as a, to our relationship with our fellow man, love thy neighbor as thyself, thou shalt not cover, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. Thou shalt not bear false witness. They're all how we relate to one another. Mm. And isn't there a verse and, that say, on, on these hang the law and the prophets? Well, this is the, the parallel passage that we were talking about, where the lawyer asks him, might as well read from verse 35 all the way to 40. Okay, so this is the same just in Matthew's gospel. Absolutely. In Matthew 22. Yeah, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so we saw from the other gospel that when Jesus said that these are the two great commandments, the lawyer was very pleased with that answer, and yet he was an expert on, mosaic law. on the Mosaic law. He believed in the Ten Commandments, oh, but sure. he was very pleased with Jesus' reply because he understood when Jesus said that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Hmm. But just looking at who is involved in this conversation will tell you that Jesus was clearly not undermining the law given at was, Mount no, Sinai. Certainly not. Or he would not, the lawyer would not have responded that way. No. In fact, he was, he was testing him. He was yeah. waiting to see, make, see if Jesus would say something contrary mm. to the law. Yeah. And you know how Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Mm. That was because the lawyer had a deeper understanding of the commandments. It wasn't just a surface level. No. He knew that what was really beneath it all was love for God. Absolutely. That's why he said to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength. Mm. And to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings yeah, and sacrifices. Yeah. He saw the spiritual requirement of the laws much greater than the ceremonial service, mm. which was rare in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it shows that that understanding of the gospel was still in existence back then, Absolutely. even though it was rare. Mm. So we saw Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman that he, he told her, you know, not what you worship. And then he said, we know who we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So the Jews had the correct understanding of worship of, of God, the Father. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that we're going to look at some really plain passages that cannot possibly be misunderstood. And this is probably the best one of all. John 17, verse 3. This is Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And notice how he identifies his Father. Notice how plain these words are. And notice how important they are because he calls it life eternal to know this. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The Lord himself refers to his Father as the only true God. And as we've been saying previously, it's because he himself proceeded forth and came from God, he's the only begotten Son of God. Mm. As the Father has life in himself, so is he given to the Son. So God the Father is the only true God, for he is the source of all life, including his Son. And that's how Christ addresses him there. Another very plain passage is found in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4, 5, and 6. The Apostle Paul, he's speaking, and he's going to also describe who the one God of the Bible is. Just as Christ told us there, the Father is the only true God. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. He tells us there's only, only one true God, 
And now it's contrasted with the, the false gods, verse 5. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Here Paul is saying exactly what the Lord told us in his prayer. For unto us, us Christians, unto us there is but one God, and it's not one God in the Trinity, one God, and he tells you who it is, the Father. Just like Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. And the Apostle Paul, contrasting the true God with the false gods, he says unto us, there is but one God, the Father. And look what he goes on to say, this is important, of whom are all things. That's what I was saying before. The Father is the source of all life. Yes, we rightly, in our last uh, study, we, we discussed how Jesus is the creator of all things, and he is, the Bible makes that very plain. But it's the Father who created all things through his Son. Notice, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. The source of all creation, the origin of all life, is the Father. And it was through his Son that he chose it to create all things. That's why it says, by whom are all things. But mm. all things are of the Father. He is the one God of the Bible. There's another passage from the Apostle Paul, again, very plain passage. And that's found in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's interesting to find these passages in Corinthians and in Ephesians because these were predominantly Gentile churches. And Gentiles, as they were being converted to Christianity, obviously being Corinthians or Greeks, etc. They would have had many gods. Ephesians, oh, absolutely. Mm. Steeped in paganism and heathenism and polytheism. Steeped mm. in it. And Paul is making these points very clear. Ephesians 4, let's read verse 4. Yeah, it would have actually been such a stark contrast between Christianity for them. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice that, Laura. Six times he uses the word one. Six times. There's one body, that's the church. One spirit. We spoke about that last, last time. There's one hope, the gospel hope. One Lord, who's that referred to? Christ. Christ. One faith, of course, and one baptism. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty s simple grammar there, what the context is about. Singular. One faith, one hope, one Lord. Now, notice who he tells you is the one God. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Very similar to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Unto us there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things. And here it says, and one God and Father of all. And when it says Father of all, it includes that one Lord at the previous verse, which is Jesus. And Jesus says that, not I. One God and Father of all, who is above how many? All. All. And through all and in you all. So the life of the Father flows through his Son and to, and to all. So God is a source of all life. And here we're seeing it from the, Jesus himself. We're seeing it from the Apostle Paul. We saw it in the Old Testament, Yahweh. And just as well before how we were talking about God creating all things through his son, just on the, on the column next to that chapter in my Bible, it's got Ephesians 3, 9, which says, the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, mm. who created all things by, by Jesus you. Christ. Yeah. Well, I was actually going there, but you beat me to it. Remember 1 Corinthians 8, 6, one God, the Father of whom are all things. That's what you just read. Ephesians 3, 9. 
God who created all things by Jesus Christ. This is why the apostle rightly says, of whom are all things. And Hebrews 1, 2. This is a good verse on two counts. It's telling you who really is the original source of creation. It's also telling you that Jesus is a son before creation, before this world, way before Bethlehem. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. It's beautiful to see the harmony and consistency in the Scriptures. You know, the Bible says, Holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If it's the Spirit of God inspiring these writers, they're all going to teach the same thing, and that's what we're seeing in the Old and New Testament. Repeatedly we've seen that the one God of the Bible is the Father, that the source of all life, of all creation is the Father, that He is above all, including His Son. And now we're seeing in Ephesians 3, 9, you rightly pointed out, He made all things through Jesus Christ. And again here, that's by His Son, by whom also He made the worlds. So the Father is the only true God, as Jesus Himself tells us. And it's life eternal to understand and to know this. And again, I want to point out, it doesn't mean in any way that we dishonor or devalue Christ. We'll see that in a moment. Not at all. No, but he's the one true God because he was first. Certainly. Absolutely. Mm. Now, remember earlier you asked me about Hebrews 1, and I was a little bit hesitant to go there right at that point because the Father calls him Lord and calls him God. I want to show now some wonderful consistency from the disciples to Jesus and to the Father himself regarding this one God. Not only one God, but he's the God the Bible calls him the Father. It calls him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It uses this term repeatedly. Now, to a Trinitarian concept, that would be almost blasphemy because they see them as co-eternal, remember? They see them as as co-equal, as two divine beings. One of them cannot be the God and Father of the other. But we're going to see it from the apostles. Would you like to read 1 Peter 1 free? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there Peter calls him the God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1.3, no need to turn there, but Ephesians 1.3, Paul says the same words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you had that term from Peter and from Paul. And again in 2 Corinthians 11.31, again Paul says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the apostles have clearly recorded that Jesus has not a father in some metaphorical way, he has a God and Father. Now notice what Jesus himself says. Does he harmonize with, with the apostles? John 20, verse 17, speaking to Mary. This is the resurrection morning, and she's rushing up to, to, to ah, hug him. Yes. But look what the Lord says to her. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. This is harmonizes perfectly with what I just read from Peter and Paul. And what's really beautiful about this is, Jesus also calls the Father his Father and his God. And just so you cannot possibly get it wrong, he says, I send unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. The God we worship in, the God of the Bible, Jesus said that is his God as well. He's not referring to himself, unto my Father and your Father, unto my God and your God. Mm, which matches perfectly with that verse that said, God 
thy God when the Father is speaking yeah, to well, his we, Son. That's right. We're about to see that. Again, in Revelation 3.12, four times, Jesus refers to the, to the Father as my God. Four times. You'd like to read Revelation 3 and verse 12? Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Four times in one verse, Jesus calls the Father my God. And he's speaking here in the reference of the New Jerusalem. This is after the plan of salvation is over, because some folks say, these terms are just used in the plan of salvation. Like they say, oh, Jesus, you know, becoming a human being, he referred to his Father as my God. But when they go back to heaven, of course, they're a trinity, they're co-eternal. But he's talking about here is after. The saved are in the temple, in the New Jerusalem. And he's still four times he refers to his Father as my God. Again, perfect harmony with the apostles. There's also passages in the Old Testament, no need to go there, but where Jesus is speaking refers to the Father as my God. Isaiah 49, verses 4 and 5, twice he refers to his Father as my God. So mm. it's not unique to the New Testament. What I wanted us to notice was both Peter and Paul repeatedly told us that Jesus has a God and Father. Jesus himself has told us, my God and your God, my Father and your Father. And I'll write upon the temple, the pillar of my God, four times, he says, again. And now notice the God the Father. Will he harmonize perfectly with what his son has declared regarding himself and also regarding what the apostles have said? Back to Hebrews 1, where we, where we were earlier. Let's read verse 8. This is the father addressing his son. But unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So here the father is addressing his son as God, which is good. Remember Thomas, my Lord and my God? Many places. Jesus is rightly called God. So this is not the question, but the question is, is he the only true God? Because you ask, that means we believe in two gods. Mm. Well, notice this. Jesus, the Bible records, has a God and Father. So yes, we believe Jesus is God. Yes, we believe Jesus is to be worshipped. We believe everything the Bible says. We also believe that Jesus has a God and Father. So there's only one true God and that are Christ's words. Here the Father himself has called him God. Now in verse 10, he's going to call him Lord. Let's read verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. So the Father addresses his Son as God and Lord. But the apostles said the Father is a God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus says it himself. Now look at verse 9. Look what the Father says now to his Son. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Yeah. When God brings you a truth, it's so beautiful, and it's such beautiful harmony everywhere. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The Father also, also declares that he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, just like the apostles and his Son himself have declared. Perfect harmony. God thy God, some translations say, have anointed thee. But that, that didn't really answer the question, because the question was, how is it that Jesus can be called God and God the Father, as we've seen, is the one true God? How can you have that and, and yet not believe in two gods? The one who believes in the Trinity concept, the one who believes that Christ that never had a beginning, was never really begotten, etc. That's why there's such a controversy over that word monogamous. They believe he's divine and they believe he's eternal. We also believe he's divine and eternal. 
Of course, we all agree that the Father is divine and eternal. Where we differ is, we believe he received his divinity and his eternal life from his Father. Jesus says it, not I. He says it more than once. And the Bible says he pursued it forth, he came from God. Or Jesus says it, etc. He says, I came out from God. His goings forth are from the days of eternity. The reason we believe Jesus is God and divine is because he's the Son of God. He received his nature, a divine nature. In fact, Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4 bring exactly that out. His express image of his person, the brightness of his glory. He has by an inheritance received a more excellent name than the angels. Yeah, I think that's the key word there, inheritance. Yeah. yeah. And Doesn't so, it say, and as so, thou hast given the Son to have life in himself? So we don't deny that, uh, that the Son of a Father is any less human than the Father or has any less qualities than the Father. Of course not. So God is, is a Father and he's divine. He had a Son. And that Son is just as divine, just as powerful and creation, etc., and eternal as the Father is. That's why the Lord, as we've repeatedly said, as the Father has life in himself, so is he given. But what I'm getting at is, we still believe in one God, one true God. Jesus says it, the disciples say it, and the Father himself, we, we have just read, mm, declares Because so. there's one Because the origin. Father is the source of his life. He's the only true God in that sense. So therefore, our question becomes to the, Trinity, to the one who believes in the Trinity, do you believe Jesus has a God and Father? They cannot say no because the Scripture declares it too many times. But they cannot accept that. The moment you accept that Jesus has a God and Father, and you understand that to be literal, then he has a beginning. Mm. And therefore, you cannot believe in the two divine beings who are co-eternal. And therefore, it's the Trinitarian who believes in polytheism, who believes in more than one God, not us. It's the Trinitarian who believes in two gods, because they have no relationship between the Father and Son. Those terms are just metaphorical. Mm. You see? Yeah, yeah, I understand. It's like John five twenty six. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life yeah. in himself. Yeah. So the Father, was, who is without beginning, who is the origin of divinity, he has given to the Son that Absolutely. divine life. It, has, it you, flows through. So because Jesus has those qualities of divinity, we can worship him as I'll, God. I'll, we're, going, we're just about to read that. But this is the perplexity that one comes to. To want to accept to believe in the Trinity, apart from these passages we've just read. They either accept that Christ was truly begotten in eternity and he's creator of all things as we've repeatedly read and sustainer of all things. They either accept that and therefore he rightly can be called God, he can rightly be acknowledged as creator and sustainer, and he can also be rightly acknowledged as having received that life and that power from his father being begotten of him. Mm, and it's for that reason that he has a God and Father because that's right. and God is above him. And therefore, you can still believe in one true God, as Christ himself says, and the apostles say God and Father, etc. The moment you believe in the Trinity, which make, makes the Son without beginning, he's eternal without beginning. And of course, we all agree he's divine. And of course, they all believe that God the Father is eternal and without beginning. Once you acknowledge they are both without beginning, there is no relationship there is no father and son. These are just metaphors. Therefore, you have two gods because you have two divine beings. And it's they are two separate divinities. Absolutely. Two separate, they have, they're not connected. There was no beginning of the son. So he did not derive his divinity, did not derive his life from, from the other being. Mm, they're distinct. They're distinct. So <laughs> you can't escape that. You cannot escape that. You have two. In fact, they have three, but they say the same with the spirit. But nonetheless, even with two, that is polytheism. That is the very thing that God was countering. That he didn't want Israel to fall into that false teaching. Mm. Remember we, we saw before one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all? The New Testament is totally supporting 
the scripture of the Old Testament and the foundation of the Jewish faith that God gave to them. Mm. Another interesting verse I just want to read out is 1 Corinthians 11.3, where Paul is speaking to mm. the church and he's talking about certain things that should happen in the church. Yeah, the order, order. The order in the church. And he says the principle behind those orders and structures is mm. this, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Mm. So the reason why we have that order in the church is because it reflects the order in heaven. The father is at the top because he was first. Absolutely. And, and man has, was first and then and then woman. He has the divine authority and the son gives him that divine authority. Mm. And that, that harmonizes perfectly with when he said, one God and father of all who is above all. Mm. You know, Ephesians chapter 4. And through all. And through all, yeah. With that in mind, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verse 27 and 28, but why this is such a good passage is, Paul is looking forward to when sin, that last enemy, is, is destroyed, sin. There's no more sin, suffering, and death. He's talking about that beautiful hope when the saints will, be, will, will live in heaven and they'll see God's face, etc., and there'll be peace forevermore. And notice, after the plan of salvation has ended now, sin has been destroyed, notice how the Apostle Paul still holds to this order. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. Notice for a moment, before you read the next verse, the he there is referring to God the Father. For he, God the Father, has put all things under his Christ's feet. And when he saith all things are put under him, that's under Jesus' feet, it is manifest that he, God the Father, is accepted. Mm. In other words, don't put God the Father under his feet as well. That's what he's saying. Just be careful. Yeah. It's the Father who put all things under him. Now look what he says now. Look at this pinnacle verse. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Wonderful. That's what Ephesians 4, 6 said. One God and Father of all who is above all and in you all and through you all. Mm. When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, unto the Father. That put all things, all things under him. him. Yeah. That God may be all in all. This order is uninterrupted everywhere, all the New Testament. Mm. The one true God of the Bible is God the Father. We've just seen passages that are just so plain. What does the only true God mean? And one God and Father of all who is above all, that would be subject unto him mean? For unto us there is but one God the Father. Does that mean therefore that we're not to worship the Son, or that we, we lower the Son in some degree. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle tells us that God the Father has highly exalted his Son and given him a name above every name, and that all things, heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue, should confess that Jesus is Lord, what? To the glory of the Father. We, Jesus says we honor the Father when we honor the Son. By rejecting the Son, the Jews, they were rejecting the Father. And so we uplift Christ, we rightly uplift him and worship him to the glory of God the Father. We honor the Father when we honor his son. Mm. 
So this is in no way to, to somehow to value Christ, but simply to show the divine order of the Scriptures from the Old to New Testament. And when sin shall be destroyed, the Son also himself shall be subject unto the Father, that the Father may be all in all. And why is this important? For me, the most important aspect of this is the Gospel. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It is this truth which is the heart of the Gospel according to Christ himself when speaking to Nicodemus that night. This transcends any culture, any generation or peoples. Everyone, regardless of their understanding or education or biblical knowledge or lack of, can understand the paternal love between a parent and a child or between a child and a parent. Look at, it, look at an infant and it's with its mother, how dependent, how, love, how much it loves its mother, how it cannot survive without its mother or even as we grow older, etc. And the moment we teach a trinity, obviously if we're honest, we have to acknowledge, in fact, the Trinitarian will tell you in metaphorical terms, there is no father and son. God did not give a son. Some second divine being who he's always been took some role of a son. And the whole gospel becomes a mockery and loses all its power because it's the love of the gospel that converts the sinner. Because mm, in God, this was manifested the, the love, love of God, God in mm. this. Yep. When the, early Christians saw, son. when the early Christians saw that this creator of heaven and earth, this great and mighty God who parted the Red Sea and destroyed the enemies of Egypt, etc. And there was also, of course, some fear involved in all that was of such a powerful God or a God of judgment. But when the New Testament exploded, when people saw Christ hanging on the cross and when he was resurrected and they saw that this same powerful God who with a word can destroy armies, so loved them that he gave his son. This is what turned people to become martyrs or just to live and to die for him and what made the gospel go like fire to the world. Because they, they, they had a personal father they could relate to that. And he loves us like he loves his own son. That he was willing to sacrifice his son to save us, to bring us forgiveness. It's a beautiful power of the gospel that everyone can relate to, which is destroyed. The knowledge of this is what does Jesus say in this is life eternal that they might know thee. When they come to know him as a loving father who made the ultimate sacrifice. It says in Romans 8, 32. What shall we say then, verse 31, to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Like everyone can relate to that. God is powerful. He's almighty. If he's with us, what can we be fearful of? Who can be against us? What can come to us that God cannot overcome? So this is powerful. But look what he says now. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So it's the love of God as a personal loving father that empowered the church and the gospel, and to this day, and what will finish the gospel work. This is why the Trinity concept or any other false understanding of who God is destroys the gospel, destroys God's love, and destroys us of understanding him and wanting to live for him and serve him. Because if there was no relationship, then how is it loving to let the other person go? There's no love. There's no love. It's strange that the more one studies, the more they come to these theological concepts. But like I was saying before, this transcends any culture or any learning. Everyone can understand the love between a parent and a child, the dependence of that child upon that parent, and the suffering a parent goes through when they see their child suffer or in trouble. This is our life. We understand this. We're born into this. And when we see that God did not exempt himself from all of that, but for this very reason sent his son here, 
No wonder the apostle says, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? He gave everything. Yeah, it was you not know, just a sacrifice for no. the son. It was a great sacrifice for the father as well. In fact, when I learned this, a thought came to me one day. If I was to ask who paid for our sins, without thinking you would say Jesus, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I would say the same. Jesus paid for our sins. But when you think deeper upon this beautiful principle, for God so loved the world, he gave his only God paid the price. Jesus was the price. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The price was his son, but he's the one that gave it. He's the one that paid it. As I said, I'm not saying that the other way is wrong. But when you look at it deeper, the father had to give him. And he made that decision to save us. So it's a wonderful, beautiful reflection on, 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 on this almighty God and how loving he is, how personal he is, how he wants us to be his adopted children. Behold, what manner of love is this that we should be called the sons of God? If we neglect such a wonderful grace, how shall we escape if we neglect such a planet salvation, the apostle says? What more can God do? It's the ultimate gift, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate suffering. And if we neglect that one, what can he do? And so it also brings us to a point of decision, of reflection that God could do no more. And if we neglect that, then we have to meet our own consequences of our decisions. Beautiful truth, the most important truth in all the Bible. Amen. Thank you for listening and please subscribe if you haven't already. God God bless. bless.